We're going to turn our attention tonight to Daniel chapter 7, and I would like for us to do that by turning to Daniel chapter 2. <laughs> Daniel chapter 2. I want to remind you a few things about the book of Daniel that I mentioned the very first uh, session that we had, because it was about four times ago now, and we've uh, finished with the introductory material to try to give us a sort of a background and a basis for how to approach uh, these difficult chapters in Daniel chapter 7 through 12. Uh, but let me remind you of just a couple of things before, before we begin. Let me move this a little closer right here. I want to remind you that um, Daniel, in 605 B.C., is taken into captivity, and he's brought to Babylon. And he's a young man. And what we're going to see in chapter 7 tonight, when we get to chapter 7 in just a moment, is we're going to see Daniel, who is probably about 80 years old, uh, seeing these visions that uh, are recorded for us in Daniel 7. Uh, through 12. But in 605 BC, Daniel was taken into captivity. Now, I, I like to be reminded maybe you, you don't have my problem. I have a real problem, a frustration. I forget dates. Uh, it's frustrating to me to like turn over to one of the minor prophets, and I don't know whether he, uh, I, don't rem I don't know what point in Israel's history he was a prophet. I don't know what he's connected to. I can't remember what the circumstances are and so I, I feel like I'm a little lost and it's sometimes frustrating for me just to read through some of the portions of Old Testament uh, scriptures because I, I've lost my frame of reference until I kind of get my feet on the ground so maybe you don't need those reminders but one of the reasons I'm going to give a little information here and write it down is is because it is certainly helpful uh, to me. Now I want to remind you that the sequence of the book of Daniel is Chapters 1 through, 1 through 6 are narrative, 7 through 12 are prophecy. But the actual sequence of the books in, in real time is Daniel chapter 1 through 4, and then the two prophecies that are given in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8 in sequence of time, they are next. And then the events of Daniel chapter 5 and 6 happen, and then the prophecy that we have in Daniel 9 through 12 is actually, chronologically, that's the last thing that happens uh, in Daniel's actual life and as these events unfold in history. And so when we look at Daniel 7, we're going to be looking at a prophecy that happens before chapter 5, and chapter 5 is when there's the writing on the wall. And so these prophecies of chapters 7 and 8 of Daniel were actually received by Daniel uh, prior uh, to the writing on the wall that we see in Daniel chapter 5, just to remind you about the sequence. Now, what I want to bring your attention to uh, in Daniel chapter 2 is verse 31. Now, Pastor Justin preached on this earlier, and I'm just going to quickly read these verses and point out to you uh, the setting that this is going to give us for the rest of the book of Daniel. Verse 31, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty 
and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out of, by no human hand, and it struck the image and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, and the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the, of the uh, summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now we know from chapter 2 that when this uh, image that... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees in, his, in a dream, when this is explained, what we, what we realize is, is that there's this statue of this giant person, and his top is gold, and then there's silver, and then there's bronze, and then there's iron at the bottom. And it is the four kingdoms. Uh, let me just jot these down for you. It is uh, the, the gold is, uh, is going to be Babylon. And you may remember that in this chapter, Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You're the, you're the head of gold. And you may remember that from the, from the text there. The silver, which is the chest area, is going to be Medo-Persia. Now, maybe all of you are up on your world history and your empires, but I, need, I, I always need reminding and then the bronze, which is the area of the thighs, is going to be Greece. And then the iron is going to be Rome. Now, the reason I point these out to you back in Daniel chapter 2, and then there's a fifth kingdom. There's the little stone. And that kingdom is Christ. Christ is the stone that smashes the image. And so that's what we see from chapter 2 of Daniel. So if you will turn with me now over to chapter 7 of Daniel. Because this is the outline that we're going to see in chapter 7. We're going to see these four things, these five things actually in chapter 7. When we come to chapter 8, we're going to focus on this kingdom and this kingdom. When we come to chapter 9, we're going to move to this, these two again. When we come to chapter 10 through 12, we're going to again be looking at the latter portion of these times. But this is the outline of all the prophecies we're going to see later in Daniel. But Daniel's prophecies are not like this. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, moving through time. In chapter 7, we go all the way to the end. And in chapter 8, we start over and we look at a portion of these kingdoms. And when we get to chapter 9, we're going to look at uh, the, the latter part uh, of these kingdoms. And in chapter 10 and 11, we're going to go back and we're going to go over it again from different perspectives. Now, it's interesting to note, uh, and you may be aware of this or, or, or not, but this is exactly what we see in the book of Revelation as well. In the book of Revelation, after chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have actually seven cycles where, where the, the period of time that Revelation is addressing uh, is described once, and it comes to the end, 
and then it's described a second time from a different viewpoint, and it comes to the end, and a third time, and a fourth time, is seven times, and then we have, of course, the last two chapters in Revelation that uh, move on to final, final things. And so the book of Revelation has the same uh, uh, pattern uh, of, uh, of dealing with uh, the, prof- the prophetic and the, the, the visions and the dreams uh, that we see also in the book of Daniel. Now, in chapter 7, we read this. I'm going to read the first, um, I'm going to read the first eight verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, And exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speak, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, the very next verses are going to talk about the ancient of days, and it's going to speak about God. But these four uh, beasts are the subject of Daniel chapter 7. And so the question for us is, what uh, are these things about? Well, first of all, I want to tell you right up front that Daniel 7 is going to be an exact parallel to what we see in Daniel chapter 2. It's going to talk about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then when we get further past where we read, we're going to get into the kingdom of Christ as well. So in in Daniel, let's look at uh, Daniel 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Let's pause there for just a minute. Now, the first year of Belshazzar is going to be... Uh, 553 or there and you hear some accounts sometimes if you read about these things it'll be different by a year uh, some of the dates are uncertain but about 553 BC so Daniel has been uh, you know 50 years uh, in captivity now and he's an he's a, a elderly man uh, late in his career. Now, the name Belshazzar, just uh, interesting enough, means Baal protect the king is what it actually uh, literally means. And so, uh, obviously, uh, what's going on there in Babylon is not 
serving Jehovah and not being faithful to him. Uh, this man is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He is the eldest son of King, and I don't know if I will pronounce this right, but it is King Nabonidus, I believe was how you would say it. And this particular king, who is king of Babylon, goes to Arabia on some extended campaigns of conquest. And so he is for 10 years not in Babylon. And while he's gone for 10 years, he puts uh, our person we're talking about here in verse 1, Belshazzar, he puts him in charge as like the regent over Babylon. So for all intents and purposes, uh, this is the king of Babylon, but he's actually uh, the regent and his father is actually the king. And this vision is again in 553 B.C. Now our text says this, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Let me pause for just a minute to say this because I didn't say it at the beginning. We are in Sunday school mode, if uh, we can use that term. It's fine if you have a question to stop and ask a question. If you have a comment to stop and, and make a comment, that's all, that's all good. Uh, if that happens, that's all, that will be perfectly fine. I didn't mention that before, but just let me mention that to you. Now, Daniel saw dreams and visions in his head. Now, turn with me to 2 Peter for just a moment, just to remind you of this. We're talking about something, frankly, that we don't have any personal frame of reference to this. We don't know what Daniel's experience or the other prophets' experience was when they received prophecies from God. This is not something that uh, we uh, can all talk about because we've all had our prophecies from God, too, and we know what this is like. And so this is something that is foreign to us and strange to us, and we don't really understand uh, what this experience would be like. But Second Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 20, I just want to remind you of this. Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we don't know what Daniel's experience was like, but we do know this, that whatever his experience was, he was being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so whatever he's dreaming, whatever he is uh, seeing in these visions during the night uh, is something that the Holy Spirit is leading him, giving him these visions, causing him to see what he is seeing. I have heard uh, people say, struggling for explanations that it might be like our most vivid dream that we've ever had. If you've ever had a dream that you could just like remember every detail and it was so real that it was like it happened in broad daylight. And uh, if you've ever had that experience, I don't know if that is the case with these visions and dreams, but I have heard that explanation. Now let's turn back to the book of Exodus and look at just a couple of verses about prophecy and the prophets. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11. Because we have this interesting statement here about Moses. It says this. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. That's not relevant to really our discussion here. Moses was in a situation where, unlike what we read in Daniel 7-1, our text is telling us here in Exodus that God used to speak to Exodus to uh, Moses face-to-face as a man would speak to another man. And so Moses had this experience that was different from that uh, uh, that we see with Daniel and the other prophets. Look over at Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. And so there uh, we're told that Moses has this unique experience, this unique relationship with God as God's prophet. He uh, speaks to God like a person would speak face to face uh, with another person. But for all the other prophets, they have visions and they have dreams. And that is the way that God communicates with them. Now, Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, and et cetera, and et cetera. So there's been no, no other prophet has ever come up in Israel. Now, I want to turn back for just a moment to Deuteronomy 18.15. Just to remind you of this. We talked about this several weeks ago, but let me remind you about this again. Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is, it is to him that you shall listen. And of course, we know from our New Testament scriptures that this is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mentioned several times in Acts. And so our Lord Jesus Christ he is one who is actually greater than Moses because his communication with God is on a level that dwarfs anything that Moses experienced. And what Moses experienced as a prophet for God is different and dwarfs any prophetic experience uh, that any of the other prophets had uh, in, in the giving of the Old Testament uh, prophecies and scriptures. So uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, just to remind you, is going to be one who more than just face-to-face uh, communicates uh, with God, who is his Father. And so we need to understand that for the most part, prophecy is received in dream and vision, not in straightforward face-to-face communication or in the world of day-to-day normal life and activity. And what the prophet sees and hears and experiences is in the internal world of dreams and vision, and it's not in the outward world of history, what the prophets see uh, as they receive prophecy from God. Now, just as a side note, 
let, let me say, give you something just to think about. Have you ever wondered about some of the actions of the prophets, like, for example, Hosea marrying a harlot, or Ezekiel laying on his left side for 390 days without moving and then turning over and laying on his right side for 40 days? Or the prophet Jeremiah hiding his loincloth uh, in, a, in, a, in a crevice along the river Euphrates. Now remember that, um, that Jeremiah is eight or 900 miles, probably much longer in ancient times because that would be as the crow flies away from the river Euphrates. And then a few months later, he's told to go back and get the loincloth. And, uh, and do we think that he spent six months going to the Euphrates and back, and then a few months later he spent another six months going to the Euphrates. But I just want to ask the question for you to think about. Um, in cases like these that we see in the Old Testament prophets, may I suggest that these unusual things may have happened in dream and vision and not in the light of day, not in real life, that in Hosea's, in, in Hosea's vision and dream that he has, that he receives his prophecies from God, he is told in, the, in his vision to marry a harlot and to have these children and to give them certain names. That, that is the prophecy that he has received. And in the case of, of, uh, of Ezekiel, I don't even know if it's physically possible for him to lie on his left side without moving for 390 days. Uh, and then turn over for 40 more days on his right side. And I don't think we're supposed to take that to be sober history. I think we're to understand that these things are things that are fantastic or things that are absurd or things that are impossible or things that are unbecoming or illegal or immoral or unholy or forbidden that those kind of things that we might see in the prophetic scriptures that we shouldn't expect uh, that those things uh, uh, happen uh, in real life, but in fact that they may very well belong to the world of vision and symbol and picture and shadow. Does that make sense? Uh, have you ever thought about those things and asked questions along those lines? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only person ever asked questions about lying on your side for 390 days. But uh, does that make sense, that, that principle that what is happening with the prophets is happening in vision and dream? And it's happening in that world. Okay. Do you think then that Isaiah I think that he did that in vision and dream, and then he talked about it and he wrote about it. Right. Yeah, that's 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 what I believe is the case uh, with those things. John Calvin says this, speaking just to give you one example, speaking about Hosea and Gomer, that would be the harlot. Uh, it seems not to be consistent with reason that God would voluntarily have rendered his prophet contemptible, he ought rather to have hidden himself all of his lifetime than to have assumed the prophetic office. He's saying there, if uh, he had actually married uh, a harlot and someone who, someone who was not a Christian, someone to whom he would be unequally yoked, if he were to do that, he should have been disqualified from, from public ministry and from being a, a prophet of God rather uh, than being esteemed as one because of those things. And so that was Calvin's observation about Hosea. So is that 
make any sense, we'll move on. But just to remind you that everything we're seeing uh, in chapter 2 and now in chapter 7 as we read these things, uh, they are fantastic and hard for us to understand because they happen in vision and in dream. Our text then says he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Uh, the, the, the idea there is that he didn't write down every particular detail of all that he saw, but that he does give us a full account. Some versions say that he recorded the substance of the matter. Uh, some uh, versions say uh, that he gave a summary of the matter. Uh, the New King James says telling the main facts of the matter. So he's communicating well to us what was important for us to know from this vision. Daniel realizes, by the way, that this is a revelation from God. And so he is going to record it. He's going to write it down and to carefully uh, summarize what he saw. Now, in verse 2, we read this. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, when we read something like the four winds, what do we think about? I hope you have something that pops in your mind. We think about north and east and south and west, that this, the four corners of the earth is it's something that's happening in every direction, that this is a global phenomena. Uh, it reaches in every direction to every part of the world. But notice it says that these are the four wings of heaven. Now, what is the significance of it saying that these are the four winds of heaven? Anybody want to suggest an answer to that? The significance of it? It is God who is at work initiating and influencing and causing this worldwide activity, whatever it is that's going on uh, for the, from the four winds of the earth. It is God that is doing this. It is coming from heaven. Now, it says that the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, some people... Uh, take the Great Sea to be the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it doesn't particularly matter in our understanding of Daniel 7 whether we take uh, it to be the Mediterranean Sea or not. Uh, more often, it is, uh, it is uh, understood to be a symbol of the nations. If you were, will look at me, look with me to Isaiah 17, 12. Just to just give you one example, because in the prophecies, of the Old Testament, we see sometimes the nations referred to as the seas. This is one example, Isaiah 17, 12, where we read, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thunderings of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. And so we see that picture in the scriptures several times of the nations being like a stormy sea, all stirred up. And in chaos. And so God is here in our verse 2. God is stirring up, that's the language there, stirring up the nations. He's causing chaos, conflict, and this is all initiated from heaven. Look with me just real quick at Revelation 17 1. Because here in Revelation 17, 1, we see something that kind of reminds us of Daniel 7. It says this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated 
on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and the wine of those sexual immorality and dwellers on the earth have become drunk. I might have written the wrong reference down. You know what? Because that doesn't sound like what I meant to read. I meant to read where it says that the angels are restraining the four winds. Anybody help me out here? What chapter am I thinking about? I've obviously written it down wrong in my notes. Chapter 7 instead of 17. Okay, thank you. All right, there we go. The more I was reading, the more I was thinking, okay, that's interesting. (laughs) I'm not sure what it has to do with what we're talking about, (laughs) but it's good, I guess. Okay, Uh, Revelation 7, 1. I have 17, 1 in my notes. I had to fix that. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living living God, and he called for a loud voice for the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And he goes on to talk in the rest of this chapter about the people that God is going to save. It's talking about God's elect here. And so in Revelation 7-1, not 17-1, Revelation 7, 1, instead of, uh, of the, the winds being blown to stir up the nations, in this case, the, the winds are being stopped for the sake of the preservation of God's people and God's elect so that they might be saved. And so the nations are being restrained from their chaos and their evil uh, for the good of Christ's church here in Revelation 17, 1, uh, 7, 1, the opposite of what we see here in Daniel chapter 7. So, uh, back in our text, uh, we see that this is something that the God of heaven is doing. The God of heaven is in control of the nations, and their fate is in his hands. And whatever the winds of heavens blow, the nations rise and fall like the waves on the sea, And whatever's going to happen is being initiated and controlled and coming from uh, heaven itself. It is because of what God is doing that these things are going to happen. And these four beasts are going to come out of of the, the, the sea of the nations, the great sea of the nations. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you remember in Revelation 5 and 6 that there's a sea around the throne of God? What is that sea like? Do you remember the language there? I think the words are smooth like glass. What kind of chaos and trouble uh, is going on around God's throne? Not any at all. We see that contrast between what we see here in the nations. Verse 3 says this, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now these four beasts are going to rise up. They're going to be national powers. They're going to be parallel to the images that we saw in chapter 2. It's going to be Babylon. It's going to be Persia. It's going to be Greece. It's going to be Rome. Now, verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now, I'm noticing my watch, and 
we're definitely not going to get through uh, four beasts. So we'll just talk about this beast and this first, and then we'll stop uh, after the first beast tonight, uh, just to let you know. So verse, uh, verse 4, we see a nation that's rising up, and it's explained to us by uh, an animal. Now, nations are often symbolized by animals. I mean, what is the United States? What are we? We're the eagle. And if I were to ask you, especially those of you from, remember, the 80s, well, if I were to ask you, uh, who is a bear? It's the Russian bear, right? And what about uh, a dragon? China. And so we do the same thing now that's happening in Daniel chapter 7. Babylon has, uh, is the lion. Now, you may re- remember, you know, from your history uh, pictures of this lion, and there were also some pictures of lions with the wing that, uh, with wings that have been discovered. That was the the image that Babylon had taken to itself. You may remember some of those those images. And so, what we're seeing here is we're seeing this kingdom being described uh, as a lion. Now, this beast is Babylon, which was uh, in existence from 625 to 539 BC. Now, Daniel sees a lion, and this lion has eagle's wings. The lion, of course, is the, is a, is the king of the beast. He's a beast of prey. He's fierce. He's powerful. And uh, this lion has the added characteristic of a bird of prey, swift and aggressive and able to swoop down in attack. This beast is parallel to the head of gold in Daniel 2, just to remind you. And we know that the lion was, in fact, a symbol of uh, Babylon. And we see uh, in archaeology that they've established that fact. Jeremiah uses the image of a lion to describe Babylon uh, in his prophecy in chapter 4 and in chapter 50. Jeremiah also, in chapter 48, uh, uses the symbol of the eagle to describe Babylon. And in Ezekiel 17, uh, eagle is also used to describe Babylon. Uh, Babylon, and so we see these two images, lion and eagle. Uh, we see these in the prophetic word uh, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well. Now, as Daniel was watching, something happens to Babylon. Its wings are plucked off. Now, when this happens, uh, it is indicating that there is a diminishing of its abilities to attack and dominate. It is no longer able to soar above all the nations that are around it as its wings are plucked off. Something else that happens to this image is this. It is placed on two legs like a man and given a mind or the heart of a man. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you rather stand against a foe that was another man, or that was a lion? If you had your choice. If you had to f- confront something, do you want to confront a- another person, or do you want to confront a lion? Or, if you look at it in, in, a, in another case, if, if you were to confront uh, a foe, would you rather that foe to have the heart of a man, or to have the heart of a lion. 
And so what we see here is as, as Babylon is being, has wings plucked and is put up on his feet like a man and he's given the heart or the mind of a man, what we see is we see Babylon being brought down to just be like everybody else. No longer this fierce beast, no longer like a lion roaring uh, through uh, that part of the world conquering, but we see him, uh, we see Babylon be diminished in respect to the other nations. And so that's what we see happening here as he sees this vision. Babylon's going to uh, start to lose uh, its, its power. Now, note something very important about this verse. Who plucks the wings from the beast? Daniel's seeing this vision. There's this beast. It's got wings. It's a lion. And somebody comes along and plucks off his wings and takes away his lion uh, fierceness. Who diminishes his power to that of an ordinary man? Who changes the ferocity of his beastly heart. Well, we know who does this. It is the God of heaven, the one who is blowing the winds through uh, this great sea of the nations. He is the one who is in control of what is happening here in the history of this great nation, Babylon. God does this, and his wind blows from heaven. The waves of the sea rise, and Babylon rises. And the waves of the sea diminish, and the nation of Babylon diminishes as well. Psalm 47, 8. Psalm 47, 8. It says this, God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. And that's what we see here in Daniel chapter 7. So I'm going to stop here and not get into the other beasts. We'll do those quickly next time, God willing. And so, does anybody have any questions about prophecy, about the method, about this first beast that we see, or about the layout sort of the book of Daniel? Any questions at all? Yes? Well, just to give you a couple of examples, like if you're reading in Isaiah, and Isaiah has some narrative, and he also gives some uh, historical uh, references to things that are going on around him and in the nations, and he, he mentions kings, and he visits this person, and he sees this person, and these things are happening. But you'll see those sections where in our English Bibles we have this luxury, I would say, is that we have sections that are blocked off. And they're, they're, they're lined up in our, in our English Bible in ways that look almost like poetry or you, you, you know what I'm talking about. And when you see those, you need to really be always asking the question of, uh, you know, if this is God says and then we have those blocks of Scripture. Those are the kind of things we would want to be looking at and, 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 and questioning, uh, you know, 
uh, how, how am I to understand this given the fact that this probably came in a, a dream or a vision and, and something that was not straightforward like Moses talking face-to-face to God. That was how that would be received. So that would be a clue as to how to, how to find and see those things. Right. And one of the things we see in the early part of Daniel's prophecy is I look, uh, and and I looked, and uh, I looked, and I looked, and it's the idea that he he keeps uh, he he's like he's like astounded, and he keeps looking, and he can't believe what he's seeing, and he keeps looking, and and, and we see those those little markers in Daniel seven especially. Anything else? Okay, if not, let's close with the word of prayer.